Spark Nation. I'm Jim Wyant, founder of ETF.com and CEO of Spark Network. And this is Pennies from Heaven, a podcast featuring choice insights and lively debate with all the biggest names in the ETF world and beyond. Join us to receive Pennies from Heaven straight from the nattering nabobs of investment. Today, we have a really interesting topic, um, ESG. And in particular, ESG in the context of the recent exit of Tesla from the S&P ESG index. And I felt like when I saw that story come out, that it was a really good teaching point to talk about what ESG means, how ESG indexes work, and the different sort of aspects of ESG investing. So we've got really a great group to talk through this topic. Um, We've got Alex Maturi, who's the retired CEO of S&P Dow Jones Indexes and current board member of the CBOE. Deborah Yang is CEO of DAISY and the former head of ESG at MSCI. Eric Balchunas is senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg. And Dave Nodig is financial futurist at Betify. I nailed your title this time, Dave. Got it right the first time. Um, so, so thanks to all of you for joining today. Really looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this all week. So um, I will kind of set it up. Um, so let's start with um, uh, Tesla and Tesla coming out of the S&P index. So I guess I'll start the discussion by asking Alex, can you talk about that and the reason that happened? I'm not methodology expert, clearly, but I think um, one of the things that people forget about what these indices are meant to achieve, right, is one of the nice things, about, I guess, about the index business is the methodology is pretty clear, right? And and one of the things that was built into the methodology for this particular index is that, you know, you're trying to weight it towards companies that have better behavior, however you want to define it, right? And there's different elements in that, you know, some of it is just screening out companies before they've fallen to the universe. Um, some of it is then just looking at what market cap gets you that sort of exposure with the better companies. Again, however you want to define it, whether it's higher ESG scores or carbon world or carbon output. Um, the problem with Tesla was that its score wasn't very good as a company, not as a product. And because it's all relative to other companies within its industry, a lot of the other competitors are doing better, right? Their scores were rising. So it was just kind of simple math that it fell out because it was bottom 25%, I think, they used in the methodology. I think the biggest issue really is, is separating ESG in terms of the companies versus the products, right? You know, people look at Tesla and say, well, how could a company that produces an electric car be bad? Well, you have bad labor practices or other governance practices, that's going to impact your, your scores. I, I'd pile in there that I think also this is a great example of ESG doing exactly what it's supposed to do and what it actually can do well. Um, a lot of the evidence suggests that uh, the real bang for your buck in terms of measurable economic performance is actually just avoiding traps. 
it's not so much that you're, you know, this company will get an incremental 5% return on capital. It's the, oh no, you got out of the way of a controversy, right? So controversy scoring is a big issue in a lot of ESG methodologies. Um, and and Tesla just fr frankly doesn't rank very well on those things. It's got huge regulatory risks right now. They're being investigated by regulators in multiple countries. They've got lawsuits alleging systemic racism and discrimination in their plants. Uh, they have significant issues in their non-U.S. plants as well in terms of labor practices. Like it's a it's a pretty ugly scorecard when you go through Tesla as a company from anybody's methodology. Uh, you know, now if you were only in investing in clean energy, maybe Tesla would be there. And indeed, it is still in a lot of clean energy ETFs. But if what you're trying to do is get broad economic exposure and what juice you can out of ESG as an idea, controversy scores is is really pretty. Um, you can't really argue against it. It just plain has worked for a lot of situations. And one more thing just to add on that is um, most of the I would say the better ESG metrics are forward-looking, right? When you look at things from a forward standpoint versus just taking a snapshot or back-looking, you'll get very different results, right? You can, you know, people criticize even in, in some, some products, you know, how could you have an Exxon in, right? Or how could you have a Royal Dutch in, in some of these? Well, if these are companies that are doing a lot to prepare for climate transition, maybe that's the goal, right? Because if the goal is to shift capital to companies and force them to prepare for this. You need to look at it from a forward look. And again, when you separate the product from the behavior of the companies, you know, penalizing somebody changes their behavior, at least in theory. And that's, that's part of the goal of a lot of these products. I agree that Tesla has issues on social with regard to product safety and quality. They have opportunities on labor management, diversity, and uh, governance, all the things that are full of controversy no dispute about any of those things. Um, I think most companies in the S&P 500 would score relatively average on uh, social and governance. It's an opportunity for most companies, and Tesla definitely has huge opportunities in that space. One example is Tesla has only 25% of their board are women, and recently it was fewer than uh, 25%. And being at S&P average is not, still not good enough. So I would agree with everything that you're saying. However, I do think, as you mentioned, Alex, that uh, Tesla is a, a clean tech solution provider, really a rare uh, solution provider in the automotive industry. And with the electric vehicles, they've really... Um, created a huge reduction of their carbon footprint versus their combustible counterparts. Uh, General Motors have said that they plan to reduce and move over entirely into electric vehicles, but not till 2035. We're talking about more than a decade of carbon pollution by their products. That is very substantial. And so at MSCI, which is the index provider and the uh, ratings that we use, and I was the global head of ESG index for MSCI, um, MSCI believes that the weighting of ESG should not be equal. And depending on the industry, some in, uh, key issues are more important than others. So in the case of automotive, the key issues are product carbon footprint, and uh, looking at clean tech because they're a major problem in terms of the carbon footprint that they create, right? If you're looking at 
climate change and what needs to transform in the energy transformation. The automotive industry in transportation is one of the only ones with a solution provider like Tesla. And they have actually won the market cap. They're substantially larger than General Motors. So historically, they've captured a lot of market cap. They continue to be the leader in terms of clean tech solutions. And when you compare with other industries like financial, they should be focused on uh, the behavior of the corporate uh, ethics and bribery. So every industry really should have a different weight. I don't disagree with that. And I think most methodologies do that, right? They look at both the materiality of the data. They look at the proper weighting scheme. And I think it's important with any of these indices uh, to provide that sort of transparency so that people could look at that and make an informed decision. I think one of the biggest issues I've seen with ESG in general is that people don't understand what they're buying, right? They buy products because of the label. You don't understand uh, the methodology. And I think it's here it's where, again, look, I, I always wear the index hat because that's been my background for many years, but at least with an index methodology, it's, it's out there, it's clean, right? Um, in the active world, you may or may not actually know whether they're following the methodology, right? Now, you may have a lot more latitude, clearly, to, to make some, some bets, whether it be sector bets or stock-specific bets. Um, but at least with the index methodology, it's there. Right? You can see the scores. You should be able to see the data beneath the scores. You see not just the ESG combined scores, but individually um, be able to, if you want to, again, if you're just looking at the data, you know, override it, which again, most of the data providers now give you that sort of flexibility. Problem is that's great for you know, people in the index world, people that are creating products. The average buyer, I don't think, gets it. They don't, you know, they try to just rely on you know, what's the fund? And it'll be interesting to see what happens with this you know, new SEC proposal on, on naming conventions. Because, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of people out there that just kind of took a traditional product, uh, slapped an ESG moniker on it uh, to charge them one higher fees because those products were getting higher fees. I don't want to sound too cynical here, but, um, and that's how you get to your uh, 40, what was it? What was the number? $40 trillion, Dave, of, of the ESG assets. Yeah. You know, um, it's not necessarily that these are pure $40 trillion of assets that are, quote, unquote, clean, good companies. Uh, I don't want to say wave the wand over it because that's part of your process. Um, and you got to do a little bit more than that as, as uh, you know, PWS has learned, right? And be very careful nowadays in terms of what you claim you're doing. Um, but there is a lot of misinformation, a lot of lack of, of good information on these products. I agree yeah. about transparency. I think it's really important how um, index providers and ratings are combining because there's a huge academic argument that if you combine too many factors and E, S, and G don't necessarily go together and the signals can really dilute each other. So again, I do think equal weighting doesn't make sense in some industries like automotive and maybe shipping. You need to look at the carbon footprint, energy transformation. I think these are really huge and those factors should be overrated. And I love how uh, the data is now coming out. So hopefully individuals could now be able to say, well, I care more about climate change, uh, degree warming or carbon footprint or women on boards. And they can choose and uh, pick their companies according to the data points that are out there. Is there is there any put? Do you think it makes sense from a regulatory perspective to standardize some of the classification or 
you know, you know, sort of the way that organic food has kind of gone through the same thing of you could slap organic on anything and like put a higher price on it. And it seems like there's a good bit of that that happens in the investment space as well. First of all, do you think that makes any sense? And is there any push in that direction? In Europe, you have SFDR where you're um, focused on looking at the labeling. There was so much greenwashing in the industry where all funds were <laughs> classified as green. And now you have the light green label, the dark green label. And I think that's really helpful because actually most funds, I think 41% of funds are either light green or dark green in Europe, according to Morningstar. Um, and actually the dark green could sacrifice some returns because it's really more impact focused and it's difficult to be dark green. So on the light green labels, um, you are looking at financial materiality. You try to do some sort of impact, but that it's, it is a light footprint. I think these labels are really helpful. And as fund managers are global, they have to create these products for Europe. They can also accept these products in the U.S. So I do think there is some uh, real benefit to having uh, regulation step in and the SEC pushing for more disclosure, especially on the supply chain, is super valuable, um, both on the uh, public markets, but because public markets have supply chains in the private markets, we'll be able to see a lot of um, private market data as well. And I think that's super helpful. I would say I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of mandates coming from regulators because they don't always get it right. We've seen it in Europe with the climate transition benchmarks and people will, people will game it, right? I do think things like what the SEC is trying to do in the U.S. in terms of standardizing data disclosure, because there's a problem underlying a lot of these scores is that we're not all looking at the same data and interpreting it the same way. And, and that's, you know, I didn't need to argue whether that's good or bad, but um, a lot of data is, is self-reported. It's not, it's not audited data, lowly financial data is. So, you know, they're doing financial analysis, right? They rely on an auditor has said this, the financial statements are clean. Um, that's not necessarily the case with a lot of the ESG data that's coming out of a lot of companies. You know, there's a bias that smaller companies actually don't provide a lot of data because there's a cost of doing it, right? So there's a bias ready against smaller companies in terms of quality of their data. Um, but I think you need better data to allow better scores. And then better scores allow better investment decisions. Um, we're not even at the good data stage. I think a lot of the data that's out there is just not very all. I'll jump in. I don't think they should standardize either. Although I, I think I get the need and the desire because we've just heard two versions of ESG from MSCI and S&P effectively. And you could, and we could get even deeper. I bet they use, say, 15 fields for governance and Five might be, you know, the same and a couple are different. And as Deborah says, they, in MSCI's case, they um, uh, really take other, uh, the sector into consideration. I mean, I don't know. I, to me, this is all just active management with another face. To me, ESG metrics are important. And as Dave said, they, they really could be a red flag potentially for something down the road. That said, they also could not. You could not have Tesla and miss a thousand percent run. I mean, who, who wants to not make money, right? And so I just think that over time, the underperformance periods of ESG will turn many of the tourists off and you'll be left with two or 3% of the hippies who are really into this stuff, who will stomach those underperformance periods. This happens with smart beta. It happens with certain themes. 
have with currency hedging. That was a big deal, remember? But now that ESG is going through underperformance, the flows have really taught, like really come down. They're almost flat over the past two months. Um, so I just think that if you're, if you're analyzing a company, you should work in ESG metrics and you decide, do I want to own this? I just don't know if it can be indexed. And I, even the people who advocate for it, I bet privately they don't own it. I bet they own BTI and they're happy with that. And then you get into the fact that, well, why do I not want to own Tesla? I own a Tesla or I go to Exxon or I am a big fan of uh, Warren Buffett. Berkshire is in zero ESG ETFs. So I think then you get to the consumer part of your life, contradicting the investment part, which is a whole nother dimension to this. So I find, you know, I've always used Winston Churchill's quote about Russia and applied to ESG, which is it, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Because it all depends on what your values are. Then you have to start from there and figure out your life as a consumer versus investor, your tolerance for this. Then you've got to look at 25 different methodologies. By the time you get through all this, you're, you're head spinning. And I think it's just a very hard thing to make objective as an investment. So I, I'm bearish on it versus the hype. That said, for certain people who really live this lifestyle, you know, um, they're very co conscious of this kind of way of life. I think it's a good investment. I do. I just think that's only two to three percent of the population. But that's that's almost exclusively a retail perspective here. And most of the assets that are currently in there, which like Bloomberg's own numbers are like thirty nine trillion dollars. Right. The reason you get a number that big is because you're talking about Nordic sovereign funds. Right. You're talking about huge pensions and endowments that may have, you know, some of them like I, I'm familiar with a few where I've done some advice work. Some of them, you know, will absolutely get flagged as ESG. But the only thing that's in there is no oil companies. But because that is part of the mandate, right, you can have multi-billion dollar pension funds that just simply skip oil companies and they get flagged as ESG. So to your point, I agree it's very much in the eye of the beholder, but I think just focusing on whether or not retail investors are going to buy fund product in the United States is looking at an incredibly thin part of where the ESG momentum is coming from. I mean, no, I, that could go away and I don't think ESG slows down. Well, again, I'm, I'm a US ETF analyst largely. And <laughs> so that's, I'm very focused on that area, but I, I will say ETFs tend to be symbolic of other areas. I think you're right. The European ETF ESG uh, market is also very different because the government's almost forcing you over there. I don't like that. But also in Europe, you don't have to worry about missing a Tesla or an Amazon. There are no stud innovative companies over there that you have to worry about missing. You can, it's just very flat. So who cares? You know, Over here, you risk missing a juggernaut of a company. And I think a lot of people are in the market to make money and make sure they don't underperform. Because after 10 years, if you lag the market, um, you're going to be pissed off and you're going to feel like you got duped. And I think, uh, again, I'm not anti-ESG as, as much as I am anti-nasty surprise. So I think retail largely will be lower than people think. The institutional world, I find that to be a lot of peer pressure and virtue signaling. I don't know if any of these people, if you really ask these CIOs, do you really believe in this stuff? I bet they'd probably say, no, I'm just doing it because I don't want to get called out. Um, or okay, you're going to have no energy companies. Um, well, what about, aren't these companies going to be key in the energy transition? Don't you drive a car? Don't you fly to Davos? Um, I just find that, yes, it's true, but it's a lot, there's so much hypocrisy in it um, that I think a lot of it's done because of peer pressure uh, on the institutional level. But to your point, you are right. And that's why our analysts have these big numbers. They include institutions, they include global. 
But when I, I'm just so largely focused on the US ETF market, which is largely advisors and retail. And, and super overhyped. I'm with you on that. Like the amount of selling being done on ESG is pretty intense. The media loves it. It's a, yeah. it's a very media positive story. They really get behind it. What I don't appreciate about the media though, is when they do sell this, they, they don't apply the same kind of analysis and journalism they do to other areas. You, you really should dig in here, look at what's in it and what's not in it. Um, it really does demand a lot of analysis um, and it doesn't get it all the time. And I think that's where I could be seen as a curmudgeon, but ultimately I'm just trying to really highlight the fact that you're going to be shocked by what's in your ESG ETF and what's not in it. And you, you may you have to reconcile that before you invest in it. And can we talk about the, the sort of the elephant in the room, which is at the core, I think, of Eric's comments, which is... When you invest in ESG, should you expect to underperform the market in service of your values, or should you expect to outperform the market? And I, I would address that one to to Deb, to Deborah Yang. Thanks, Jim. It really does depend on your objective, but in the institutional world, there is no question. The adoption of ESG has everything to do with the financial materiality. Um, I agree. I've gone around the world, um, not just in Europe and Japan and uh, Asia and all over the U.S. talking to the world's largest pension funds, CIOs, and they uh, unanimously agree that ESG can be uh, a real risk. So there may be a question about outperformance or not and timing of the markets, long-term versus short-term. That's still up in the air. But uh, ESG as a potential event risk with regard to governance, the long-term potential erosion risk um, for climate change, I think these are well accepted by the institutional investor. And just like minimum volatility indexes, when you reduce risk, there is a financial relevance now, if you're trying to outperform, that's a different issue. And I think that's more to do with stock picking and so forth. MSCI has 13 plus years of live track record of indexes that were created or the KLD 400, which were created more than 30 plus years ago. Those were not supposed to outperform the S&P 500 because they matched values, which was not a financial criteria necessarily. But they did actually keep up or outperform most of the markets, market cycle year after year. Now, there's an energy shock. There's a war in Russia and Ukraine, and uh, that's really hit the ESG market. I don't think ESG was intended to catch every single potential shock in the market. But from a long-term point of view, there is a question and there is a belief by some that there could be the potential for outperformance. I agree, the, the jury is out, but uh, the adoption has a lot to do with financial materiality in the institutional world. And on the retail investor, there's a lot of surveys that show the next generation investors have 95% interest in trying to find a way to put sustainability into their portfolios, and they don't really have the tools to do it. So uh, you can buy an ESG index fund or ETF, like all of the other indexes that uh, Alex's team has created and at, at MSCI had created, index is a really unique way of creating an algorithm to automatically capture maybe an active segment of the market, whether it's value growth, minimum volatility, whether it's ESG, having an automated portfolio in an index is a fantastic innovation. 
you can buy and sell it and decide when uh, ESG is overplayed and underplayed. But being out there as a technology, phenomenal innovation. The root issue is still, what do you want from ESG? A lot of the products that were built, uh, and I don't mean just the indices, because indices follow kind of the demand of the product issues, to be honest, right? A lot of them were built to be very low-tracking products, purposely, right? Because if you had a high-tracking product, Right now, all of a sudden, you got all sorts of basis for this into your portfolio. So if you're benchmarked to like MSCI World, to get S and D 500, whatever, if you're if you're straying a lot from that, now if you're an institutional fund manager, you got to explain to that pension board why you're outperforming or underperforming, right? So most of the product issues that when we started building these things, you know, the idea was to have actually more tracking there. Most of the product issues wanted things to be tighter tracking, which again doesn't make a lot of sense. So how do you do that, right? So you can use optimization techniques, right? And so what ends up happening is you overweight some, do sector neutrality, do industry neutrality. Right? You do a lot of things to kind of reduce, maybe it's the carbon output, if it's a carbon fund or the you know, maximize the ESG scores. But at the end of the day, what you're trying to balance is what looks like that underlying index, but is a little bit better. But that little bit better is not going to make, make a big difference in the end. Right. And so if you want something that really cares, right? So again, now if you're talking about somebody that really wants an energy fund, you're gonna have a lot of tracking there. And that's I'm not saying that's either good or bad, but you have to understand that going into you know, that's not the way a lot of the products are built. A lot of the products are built to to kind of try to offer up. I mean, the very first generation products go back 10, 15 years ago, were just that to kind of what I refer to them as best in class products. These are the best companies in an industry, a country, a region. And the problem is the performance varies quite a bit. Now, why is that performance varying? Is it because of the ESG factors? Or is it because you're overweight or underweight a particular sector when that sector is done well? So again, if you're overweight on energy last year, you got rewarded for that. So if you fund underweighted energy because you're doing the right thing from an ESG standpoint, you got penalized for that. But what was your objective? Right, you can't have it both ways. Now, again, the tools allow you to do that, and that at an institutional level, you can do the performance attribution, you can do the factor analysis, you can explain it pretty well. At the retail level, you can't, okay? because they don't understand concepts, and they kind of, you know, I bought a clean energy fund. Why does it have X on it? That's the dichotomy that they live with. And I would say, U.S. investors are even less sophisticated than, than the European investors, even at the retail level. Yeah, I'd really? pick up just back to Eric's point. I, I, well, well, let's go, go back ahead. there. European retail investors are less sophisticated. If they were sophisticated, we'd see a huge boom in passive funds over there. Oh, They're in the dark. They are the victims of these brokers who uh, claim to pick active managers. Um, maybe they're more sophisticated on ESG, but in investing, I would say Americans are way ahead. I'll agree. It's, I was referring to their ESG knowledge. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah, definitely it's more culturally culture. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Okay. Yeah. But I partially think that the, you, the retail investors have sniffed out low cost index funds. And this is a big reason I'm bearish ESG also and direct indexing, which is just kicking another hornet's nest. But anything trying to dislodge three basis point Vanguard index funds, I'm just bearish on. I'm sorry. It's too hard. Nobody wants to give that up. Even ESGU, which is uh, Alex, as you're saying, sort of a low tracking error cheap way to do it. Although, what do you mean? It's, it's very hard to see what 
impact you're making with ESGU, but let's just say this is one people like because it's cheap. It's still five times the cost of BTI. And so I just think ultimately in the US, I would almost give the US investors some credit for sniffing out three basis point beta, which is such a beautiful way to invest. You know, over 20 years, you'll beat everything. But um, but, you, but you you use your own example. I mean, ESGU has what, $23 billion in it or something like that. So clearly there's a very large demand for it. Maybe it's not as big as the entire complex of, of you know, you know, three, five basis point, you know, SPY and, and BTI funds, but like well, there's would, clearly say, demand for it. Well, I would say like Vanguard and BlackRock take in like two ESGs a month. Like, I mean, it's there. I mean, I think ESG right now in ETF assets, in ETF assets is like 2%. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, I think it gets to four or five and ceilings there, but we'll see. I, I, I do like the clean energy stuff, the stuff that goes after clean energy companies, because there's no confusion there. You're yes. buying 30 clean energy stocks or solar stocks, and it fits practically on top of that cheap beta. And so we're more bullish on ESG themes um, because of their practicality and their clarity. I think when it gets to exclusionary, it gets just so confusing and difficult. And then you've got to sell your VTI because what's the point of putting a little of that on top of VTI? Now you're just doubling up and you still own right. the bad stocks of VTI anyway. So you have to kind of go all in, which to me, the hippies will do and God bless them. And they should be the ones who could will do it because they can stomach the underperformance variance. It's the regular people, the tourists, which I think is 95% of US investors who probably will either try it and be like, this sucks. It, you know, like ESGU the, is like underperforming five yeah. by 3% this year. Yeah, we've seen it in smart beta. We saw it in currency hedging. People um, have a taste of underperformance. And they're like, yeah, I, I, I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm out. So, I, But I do think there's a core. I just think it's 3 4% market share. I think that's really I, I, I think I agree with that, right? It's, I think the real power is going to be where you see real performance that aligns with the impact. Right. So Kathy Wood, like through the I think that there's a place for that clean energy suite that really aligns to where things are moving or energy transition or whatever, which has a huge potential alpha against the rest of the market. Um, that that I think well, that's really interesting. You could make an argument that it's also more likely to be more impactful than sort of engaging with Exxon. But that will always be small. You've seen it with thematics for years, right? They come in and out of favor. Even, even factors, which I think I would say are more ingrained in academic theory, right? Value and growth have cycles. And, and again, to, to the point on the performance, you know, looking at something over a two, three-year time period is not enough, right? You really need a long time series to decide. Is the performance there? Is there an performance or outperformance, right? You should do attribution as a set along the way. But it's gonna it's gonna take time. To Eric's point, if people are underperforming short term, it goes out the window. It's that, like you said, at the end of the day, people are gonna sit there and say, "Yeah, you know, I like it, but am I willing to pay two percent in underperformance? Forget about the fees, right? <laughs> am I gonna give up two percent or percent of performance, which over time is that much less than I'd have for retirement to have the product that I like? But will be people that want to. And I mean, that's the beauty of America, right? I mean, offer these choices and let people make it if they can make an informed decision. I'm always of the belief that most people are not able to make informed decisions. They just don't know what they're buying. It's a whole different discussion on education. 
feel like we are all circling around a core issue, which I think we all agree on, which is that the labeling here is the huge issue, right? That this is just such a large brush that we're including everything from clean energy sector funds, which is a whole thing by itself, and SHE, the Women Empowerment Fund, and ESGU, which is a fairly lightly tweaked version of the broad market. And we, yet we put all of these things under the on one umbrella. And therefore, I don't think we can say, will they all underperform or outperform? It's sort of a ridiculous question. It's like saying, well, will factor funds outperform or underperform? That's not the point, right? Factors, some are going to outperform all the time. Like, I mean, no, there will always be one outperforming all the time. So I, I, I feel like the biggest service that like the, the media folks who are talking about this could do over the next 10 years is to disaggregate all this and stop talking about it as ESG, right? Because I think it's very clear that there is a class of investors that's trying to project power by making an investment decision that is non-economic. And I think that it's important they understand they may be making a non-economic decision by choosing to invest in an impact fund that's choosing to look at certain companies. But by the same token, something like ESGU may in fact outperform over the long term just by staying out of the, out of the way of some of the worst fenders. Just r real quick on that. So I, I agree with you. In our system, we would call TAN thematic. It is not ESG. We sometimes include it in ESG if a reporter says, yeah, I want clean energy in there. But to us, that is a thematic play. Sure. In fact, so clean energy has about 18 billion in assets. ESG has, I think, 100. So it's a small portion, but it's growing. But we do separate them. And then for the exclusionary ones, or the sort of classic ESG, we do have a system where we have an analyst who grades all the stocks for their ESG-ness, and then we roll that up and we give every ETF an E-score, an S-score, and a G-score, yeah, and like a, a total score. score. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, and so if you want jacked up ESG, go for this one. If you want watered down, shop over here. I think that's probably the best service to help at least save time because there's hundreds of them. And like, who can go through all these? It's like, <laughs> and they're radically I mean, different. Yeah, this is like job security for, for us, I think. <laughs> also think there's a big generational difference. So I, I do think that the next generation and millennials really do believe that they, because climate change is one of the biggest risks of this generation, of the transformation of energy, the crisis that they're facing. This is absolutely the life they're living and ESG matters to them as a result. And I think uh, it's a huge risk in terms of downside, not only the physical operations and product side, I think those are well documented, but also the opportunities are massive. So I think the dislocations for climate change is really huge. We talked about clean energy. We don't know what the right time to enter. Maybe it's not even in the public markets. Maybe it's in the private markets. Maybe it's in the bond market. But the winners of climate change, we need more companies like a Tesla, not only in the transportation for individuals and consumers, but in industrial, in the air, in shipping. We need transformation in real estate. So there's so much that needs to happen and the opportunities are really probably don't even exist today, but very exciting. And I think that is the promise of ESG. I agree with you. I just think of, okay, my <laughs> mom or my son, they come to me and they say what you just said. Oh, I heard from this woman that's this, that, and the other. I want to put my entire retirement savings into this promise. I don't know. It sounds like active management to me. And I'd be like, well, yeah. I just, I don't know if I'd set the money that matters on all that. I, I would be too scared to be honest. I just, there are ESG 
ETFs that are designed to be very closely tracking right. risk and reward of the S&P, the MSCI USA, uh, the world indexes, so that they have a slightly in, improved uh, diet ratio ESG. ESG, but uh, with a lower <laughs> diet sorry. ESG, right? Diet ESG. <laughs> that 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 is definitely like ten ESG, calories. Right? But, yeah, but, but then I, on the satellite portfolio, I, you could have the clean tech or the climate yes. funds or yeah. the carbon trading where there's it's opportunities are going to come out that we never understood. But one more question for you. So saying you have this index you're designing and like you have a company like Tesla and you just talk about climate change and millennials or Gen Z, whatever. You have Exxon and you have Tesla. So Alex, who used to work at S&P, you're keeping Exxon and kicking out Tesla. Some other ones have Tesla, but no Exxon. I, I mean, I could sit here and make the case that both are huge, will be huge in the yep. climate change transition. I could also make the argument that both have problems. Yeah. And I think this is a, another problem here, which is that you, you can't take, you can't just keep the baby and, and throw out the bathwater. You kind of have to take both. And well, so you I, can I, underweight, don't have to take out entirely. You could underweight. Right, you could underweight. Depending on the amount of backwater. There are two two sources of alpha that has been studied that I understand. One is when you overweight the leaders, they tend to be higher quality companies and underweight the knackers. That's one approach. The second approach is letting the poor performers improve. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of an 8.8 degree warming Exxon. Everyone's hoping that they're going to improve. I hope so too. There are a lot of activist shareholders helping them along. But uh, I think you don't want to remove them necessarily, but you want to give them maybe a slightly underweight and give them a chance to improve. And that improvement is called momentum, ESG momentum. So I think you can design very smart ESG indexes you can make that a part of your core in a light way. It's an automated portfolio. You can still continue to hold the rest of the market if you like, and maybe have only a portion ESG. And then you have your satellite portfolio, which could have the impact of climate change and, and so forth. Yeah, I believe everything you just said. I think you know that. But I think it's important to point out it's really easy to sound cynical about that because it just sounds like paying people to weep at the grave of the planet, right? It doesn't sound like you're actually trying to make a thing happen. And I think that's a legitimate criticism of ESG is that a lot of it does just look like virtue signaling or you know buying off your own indulgence. And, and I think it's important to point out that, yeah, that's something, if you believe in ESG, you need to be able to talk about that too, right? For some people, this is nothing but a conscience salve you know, where you're doing the least amount you can do to say or to feel like you're doing something. Um, that can be true. And at the same time, ESG can also be a quote unquote good idea. I think it's, you know, back to the point of like Exxon versus Tesla. It's hard to compare Tesla to Exxon, right? You need to compare Tesla relative to other automakers, right? In one, in one light. And you need to compare Exxon against other energy companies. Because how do you compare, you know, Go back to earlier iterations of ESG. What what came out looking really good? It was always retailers and financials. Why? Because they didn't pollute, right? They didn't do a lot of bad right. things. Financials are heavily regulated. Didn't mean they're doing any good. It's just you excluded out all the other companies, right? And so you're trying to change behavior, which is one of the reasons why a lot of these indices were developed the way they were. You got to penalize them in some form. And so 
penalizing one company within an industry relative to another, whether it's excluding it or whether it's weighted, two different techniques. That, that sends a message to that company. Now, it only works if the cost of capital goes up because that's now you're getting into the rune of what's going to drive behavior. You saw it go back to the tobacco companies for years. They were excluded from a lot of portfolios. You know, there'll still be somebody that'll step in and buy and say, hey, these are very cheap stocks and good cash flows. I'm a value buyer. I'll buy it. And, you know, I could live with the, I, I can live with the headline risk of, of, of uh, cancer studies and things like that. Other people don't want to, you know, didn't want to accept that risk. Right? And same thing with, with a lot of, of these ESG issues. And so, again, I think it, it goes back to, you know, what is it you're trying to achieve? It's to drive the capital shifts, you need to be much, um, it, make bigger changes, right, than just slight weighting change, right? So right. Exxon going from management with the weight this major index, call it 1% to, you know, 0.8% it well, isn't going to change your cost of capital. Right? Well, um, but it's one again, maybe that does. When you get $40 trillion all moving in a certain direction and, and it nominates Exxon as the best bad oil company, so its cost of capital is lower than the guy down the street who's the bad oil company, over time, you should expect, in fact, Exxon to become bigger and bigger and start buying up all of those laggards. And therefore, the behavior trying to engender should make sense, right? Should pay out. Whether that shows up in outperformance, I think, is the thing that we get caught up in. And I think we should just start from the premise that, no, you should not expect a net improvement just because of cost of capital changes. It should actually work against you. The question is then whether or not all of the you know avoiding problems and staying out of the way of climate change make up for that. Sometimes I feel bad for oil companies. We all use they're doing oil. fine. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I guess in a public relations way, I mean, they just get beat up constantly. They're they're demonized by everybody. Yet we all really rely on oil. If they if they shut, I, listen, I, I I said if you know how China threatens to like cut someone off, like the NBA yeah. or I, I can't say it, but or like Google, that company's like, oh, sorry, we didn't mean it. Uh, we'll do what she say. There's a couple people who stood up to them, but mostly they do that. If oil companies acted like China, I think a lot of this would just shut down. Like if oil <laughs> companies said, oh, okay, you're going to slam us. You don't like us. We're awful. Okay, we're, we're removing oil from your life. I think people would last five minutes. And I think they would be like, oh my God, I will never say another bad word about oil again. <laughs> I feel like they're just a little over demonized. I feel like there should be some acknowledgement of like, honestly, oil is freaking awesome. Like my life is so great. I've, 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 and also the emerging markets, they need oil to, to come up in the, in, into a higher economic state. And it's almost like, okay, fine. You're rich. You have all this money. Now you want to like force everyone to get off oil. Well, well, you used oil to get where you are. And now you're telling me it's bad and I shouldn't use it. I don't know. I, it's, it's a very complicated issue. And sometimes yes. I feel like there's a luxury to just being able to dump on oil companies all the time. But to be fair, oil companies themselves are saying net zero promises. They're saying they're going to <clears throat> continue to bring uh, energy supply to a level and then suddenly drop off because of a new technology called carbon capture. So they themselves are the ones saying that they're going to make transformations. I mean, that, that's straight out of their PR. I mean, but I, I guess my, my whole point is it's it sometimes like I'll go to like, I love it. All these, all these big rich guys, 
take these private jets to Davos, get on stage, <laughs> coming from their heated condos that are probably way too big for one person to spend the night there. And they walk over and they're like, yeah, oil sucks. Uh, we need to bash these oil companies. I'm like, come on. I mean, have some, at least acknowledge that before. And I'll listen to you. Greta, I like Greta. She took a boat to the UN. It took her like yeah. two weeks. I respect that. <laughs> so I think there needs to be more boats and like walking and biking to Davos. You can't bike to Davos, but maybe just say I'm going to do Davos virtually. You know, the, the, energy, the energy transformation that has to happen for climate change is not going to happen overnight. So, of course, we are entirely reliant on energy of oil and gas entirely. So today in the short term, and nobody will deny that. And to remove them from indexes, I think, would be a complete not understanding of the current economic and political reliance on, on oil and gas. But the hope for transformation is still people still hope that they can transform to cleaner, greener energy sources. Well, the right, oil companies are going to be fundamental to that, right? Like no, no matter what, like what they do is the saying. biggest single lever that you have on carbon and they control all the pipes and all the distribution. And they're going to be, you know, running whatever it, things evolve into as well. And so you know, it's hard to make the case to not engage altogether and exclude. And I do agree, like the the, the rating, like what does that actually do? Um, you know, what like figuring out how to really do that in an impactful way is the is the trick, right? Like I, I think it maybe looks a little like the engine number ones with the you know the engagement with Exxon. Where big institutional companies and move flows and you're you're you have two percent less weighting or whatever, versus we're gonna put people on your board and we're gonna force the issue that those are, you know, I, I think there's something in that direction too that's that's interesting. The engine number one model is also clear. It's giving you beta, cheap beta, which everybody loves, but it's saying, give us uh, some money so we can have a voice. And we can do, we can be activists for you and help Exxon understand us. I, I, I think that's, I like it. They, they just, the thing is, they're very small, that they would need a lot more money or the ability to sort of heart, you know, uh, get BlackRock and, and Vanguard sort of like uh, following them like they did with the Exxon. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that's a novel way to look at it, is to bring those companies in. I do think, though, that sometimes the, the de demonization. I could see not working as well as maybe just a more friendlier approach towards the oil companies, acknowledging what they do, because to build a solar panel or a wind turbine or an EV, you need oil to do that. So like they're key also in just, you need oil to get all this clean tech done, but yet they get, they get crapped on constantly. Just, it's kind yeah. of, it, it is kind of weird, but I guess everybody needs like a punching bag. So what's going on in Washington now, right? It's a perfect <laughs> Demonize the energy companies at the same time that they want them to pump more. Yeah. Collected if oil is in five, six dollars a gallon to fill up your car. Again, I think the repercussions of some of these policies and people don't always think through, right? To sit there and say, yes, we should make this transition over 10 years or 20 years or whatever the time period is one thing, but there's going to be a cost and you're seeing it in. In a lot of countries now, right? You're going to see it in emerging markets. If the cost of energy goes up, or all of a sudden, 
there's some sort of global ban on thermal coal. India can't survive without coal. That's why, at the end of the day, economic interests, I think, do prevail. Much in the same way that China says they're all on board to do a climate transition in 50 years, because by then they figure they'll conquer the world. Same thing with India. They'll do it, but they'll do it on their time schedule, right? At least they're big enough to, to have a say. It's, it's a lot of smaller emerging market countries that, that can't afford it, right? Because they just they can't make the, the transition fast enough and their economies can't pay for it. And that's, that's another whole issue. It's a huge social impact of climate change, and it will hit differently, different locations. Places like India will be hit for sure. Um, places like China, where you, some cities like Shanghai will be underwater, Indonesia, and so many others. You will see countries and their political regimes, depending on how they're impacted. In Russia, their permafrost will melt, which is really not a bad thing for them. So uh, you'll see different political behavior depending on what's happening is my guess. Well, I think we're going to move toward wrapping up. The incredibly interesting and complicated area, ESG. Um, so nice job kind of navigating through that sort of impact versus perform, impact versus engagement, performance versus impact. Um, those issues, I think, are issues that investors still really misunderstand. And so my takeaway from all of you would be, if you're an investor and you're interested in ESG, you know, really look and understand what you're investing in and understand what's important to you and pick the right product to invest in that aligns with what's important to you. And that may be a little easier said than done, but, you know, get under the hood. There's lots of great resources. We got Bloomberg and Vetify out there. Um, doing all sorts of work around ESG. So, um, yeah. Um, thanks to all of you. Really appreciate your time. Uh, it's good to see you all. Thanks for having us, Jim. Thanks for the Thank you. That was fun. Today. It yeah, was. Uh, Eric, Eric, I love your curmudgeonliness on <laughs> Oh, the it's whole. great. It's the best. <laughs> uh, listen, <laughs> every panel needs a me. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sometimes like if it's a panel on arc, I would be more defending Kathy and there'd be a, uh, somebody completely there'd against Matt either way, you need someone side. to be yeah. opposite or the panel oh, just absolutely. becomes like, totally. Yeah. You, like, you, play like, that, that's, you play like a very Dave Abner role. If you know yeah, Abner. Very much so. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. I'm the Dave <laughs> Abner of ESG. I'll take it. <laughs> love it. I love it. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, folks. A lot Thanks, of fun. Thanks, guys. Great. Cheers, Talk everyone. Thank you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Pennies from Heaven podcast with Jim Wire. Produced by Spark Network and Conor Ohingasa. Music is by Pearl Charles. Take your time. For more music from Pearl Charles, go to pearlcharlesmusic.bandcamp.com. This podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as on sparknetwork.com.